Hello everybody and welcome to a podcast of Biblical Proportions. Episode 60, The Persian Remake. One day in Egypt, God decides the time has come for him to bring the Hebrews back to their homeland. The Pharaoh is holding them captive, and according to God, the Pharaoh will never agree to release them. And yet, God promises they will get to leave Egypt and return to their land. And so begins God's magical war, which will bring about chaos on Egypt. God's messenger is a Hebrew priest magician, and the first targets are the Egyptians' water sources and livestock. Egyptian magicians step forward to protect these vital life resources. They cast protective spells to keep God's chaos at bay, but predictably fail. After four magical attacks, God's priest magician musters fiery hail from above and summons a swarm of locusts to cover the land. And the seventh and final magical attack plunges Egypt into complete darkness. The Pharaoh is about to crack, but God had foretold that the Pharaoh would never release the Hebrews. And so to prevent him from doing so, God hardens his heart. But God had also promised he would bring the Hebrews back to their ancestral homeland. So under the cover of darkness, while the Hebrews are covered in light, they flee and head to the desert. Everything has gone as God had promised and foretold. This is our story for today. And it tells of seven plagues cast down on Egypt. This story was written in Persian times. And we'll see in this episode how all of the elements of the story we just went over are Persian elements. The original seven plagues were written in Babylonian times. There's a Babylonian version of the plagues and there's a Persian version of the plagues. Our story for today is the Persian remake of the seven plagues. And the plot in both of those versions is almost identical. And both times, God wins the war for the Hebrews and they head to the desert. But other than that, the Babylonian plagues and the Persian plagues could not be more different. In Persian times, the world was good. The evil empires that made the Hebrews suffer were no more. Persia was the largest empire the world had ever seen, and Persian culture was everywhere. And like all other people living within the Persian Empire, the Hebrews inevitably became Persianized. And their stories and religion became Persianized as well. The question is, if we learn about the Persian world that birthed this story, 
would we be able to enjoy and appreciate this epic as much as the intended audience did? Will we be able to uncover all the Persian gems in it that have laid dormant for thousands of years? Let's dive in. I would like to thank Matthew, Josiah, and Jay for joining our tribe on patreon.com slash biblicalproportions. Welcome. And I would like to thank tribe member Jeffrey for increasing his pledge. Thank you, Jeffrey. Hi, everybody. This is Gil. Thank you for listening. So get ready for some magic. Both sorcery and magic tricks. Let's start with the magic trick. I want to replay the same trick from the previous episode. When we immersed ourselves in the mindset of the Babylonian captives. And then we went over the Babylonian plagues. And the epic became infinitely better. Everything in the story just clicked. It became a masterpiece. So I want to try and recreate this magic trick for our story for today. I want to make it infinitely better for us. And I want to make everything click. And I want to get the answers to every question we might have about this story. When I recapped the Persian remake of The Plagues just now, the story raised many questions that as of now we are unable to answer. Such as, why does the Persian remake add Egyptian magicians trying to cast protective spells to stop Yahweh's magic? There were no magicians in the original. Why were they added? And why do these magicians only appear in the first four plagues that attack specifically water and livestock? Why aren't these magicians Casting spells to protect against the locusts, hail, or darkness? And why does the Persian remake have hail with fire inside it, while the original had normal hail? Hmm? And where does the concept of a plague of darkness come from, while the Hebrews are in the light? So many unanswered questions. But I think that we will get all the answers in this episode. This is going to be a lot of fun. Okay, so now for some reminders. The current version of the plagues of Exodus we have in our Bibles today, numbering 10 plagues, that's an editing job that sewed all the different versions into one, crisscrossing from one version to another. But thanks to what scholars call the documentary hypothesis, we can read each of those stories separately. So the original plague story, the Babylonian version, that was written by Yechezkel, Ezekiel, during the captivity in the 500s BCE. Our story for today, the Persian remake, was written 100 years later in Persian times. 
and it was written for a Hebrew Persian audience. And our writer for today, his name was Ezra. Ezra the scribe priest. He wrote the Persian remake. The Ten Plagues is one of the most influential stories of all time. But in literature, when you combine several stories into one, the whole will always be less than the sum of its parts. Each individual tale was crafted and tailor-made for its own audience and its own purposes and imbued with different cultural elements to make things pop. We know how remakes work. It's a retelling of an existing story, giving a well-known story a newer version that reflects the current times, right? The original was tailor-made for its time and its audience. And after some time has gone by, we enjoy consuming the updated versions that reflect our time, our values, and touches on the things that interest us now. So that's what Ezra did. He just wanted to create a new version for his time. So the main gap between us and the Hebrew-Persian audience is that we are Americanized and they were Persianized. Just like you can be Hebrew and Americanized today, you could be Hebrew and Persianized back then. Especially if you, like Ezra, lived at the heart of the Persian Empire and not in a faraway colony of the empire like me. So we need to go through express Persianization in this episode. And then we'll be ready for the story. So this is an express process, which starts at the beginning. And in the beginning, there was chaos and darkness and then suddenly order and light the dawn of persia was one of the most momentous historical events in human history and for the Hebrews, it started at a time of great upheaval when the Hebrew god Yahweh called upon a man to come in and usher in the stable and harmonious Persian world. The Hebrews called this man Koresh. The Persians called him Quosh. And if you had to choose the greatest leader in human history, it might be hard to find someone who impacted positively more lives, more profoundly, and for a longer time than this man. His English name is Cyrus. Cyrus the Great. The Persian King of Kings. 
Cyrus literally changed the world for the better, for millions of people. He improved their lives materially, culturally, politically, and so inevitably also emotionally. Just everything became better. How did the Hebrews feel about him? Mm. They refer to him in the Bible as God's Messiah. It would be impossible to exaggerate the impact of Cyrus on the world. He was one of the greatest conquerors in history. And then he turned into maybe the greatest political leader in history. Greatest in the best sense of the word. And Israel lived a hundred years after Cyrus in the world Cyrus created. A good world. For centuries, the world has seen nothing but chaos. And then Cyrus came along, conquered that world, and established the Persian Empire. The Persian Achaemenid Empire officially begins in 550 BCE. And it was three times as large as Nebuchadnezzar's preceding Babylonian Empire had been. Larger than the Assyrian Empire had ever been. So Cyrus, sitting on top of the world, had a lot to brag about. Rulers then, like now, always brag. They brag. But what they're bragging about is very telling because it reveals what are the political and social values of that time, of their time. Hmm? So before we get to what Cyrus bragged about, so we can fully understand how radically different he was from those that have come before him, it would be useful to remind ourselves what his predecessors bragged about, be they Assyrian rulers or Babylonian rulers. I could have chosen any such leader's inscription. I arbitrarily chose some inscriptions by Tigrat Palester III. Okay. This is what they all brag about. In my second year, the god Ashur, my lord, encouraged me, and I marched against the lands of Namri. I rained down fire upon them. The enemy took to a high mountain peak. I pursued them and defeated them. I burned them with fire. I impaled their people, cut off the hands of the rest of their warriors. My army took, and by took he mean plundered, without number, camels, oxen, sheep, and goats. So, that was the only kind of king of kings the world had known for centuries. Until Cyrus. Okay, let's go back to Cyrus. What did he brag about? Let me read you some of what he bragged about in what is considered one of the most important archaeological findings of all time, the Cyrus Cylinder. 
he starts off bragging like all of the other kings before him, how he was chosen by God, specifically the Cyrus Cylinder was written by Babylonian priests. So here he brags about Marduk, the great Babylonian god, choosing him by name, Cyrus, king of Anshan, to conquer the world. And he brags how everybody is bowing at his feet. So what does Cyrus do once people are bowing at his feet? Let me read. And he shepherded them with justice and righteousness. Marduk the great lord, guardian of his people, looked with gladness upon Cyrus's good deeds and upright heart. And his vast army, that's Cyrus's army, and his vast army, whose number, like water of the river, cannot be known, marched into Babylon in peace. And Marduk made Cyrus enter his city Babylon without fighting or battle. He saved Babylon from hardship. Yahweh didn't spare hardship from Judea. Marduk did spare his people from hardship. Okay. I vote Marduk here. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, let me continue. All of the people of Babylon, all the land of Shumer and Akkad, they rejoiced at his kingship and their faces shone. They had all been redeemed from hardship and difficulty. They greeted Cyrus with gladness and praised his name. Hallelujah! Conquest without fighting and people rejoice or glad and their faces shine. And if you can imagine it, it only gets better. I did not permit anyone to frighten the people of Shumer and Akkad. Okay? He did not permit them to frighten them. It's not that he didn't let them plunder, but he didn't let them come in as foreign occupiers. That's what that means. Not even frighten them. They have to feel comfortable. Okay, let me continue. I saw the welfare of the city Babylon and all its sacred centers. I relieved their weariness. Marduk, the great lord, rejoiced over my good deeds. Good deeds, peace. That's what Cyrus wanted the people in his empire to know about him. This is what he promoted. And this more or less lasted for 200 years with so few wars and rebellions. Oh, Persia was as benevolent an empire as there ever was. And here we come to the part that made the Cyrus Cylinder world famous, since it is a decree that allowed the Hebrews, among all of the other captives in Babylonia, to return to their homeland and take with them all the religious artifacts the Babylonian had stolen 
and stored. Let me read. I returned the images of the gods who had resided in Babylon to their places, and I let them dwell in eternal abodes. I gathered all of their inhabitants, that's the captives, and returned to them their dwellings. He made their dwellings their own. He returned to them their dwellings, not returned them to their dwellings. It's as if it's always been their dwellings, even when they were captive. So just compare <laughs> these two inscriptions and realize that basically good triumphed over evil. Light replaced darkness and order and stability and harmony replaced chaos. These values were at the core of Persian culture. And nowhere was it more apparent than in the Persian state religion, called Zoroastrianism. We need to talk about Zoroastrianism because Ezra wrote his Persian plagues, not in a vacuum, but in clear response to Zoroastrianism. And once we learn about this religion, we'll be able to fully enjoy the multitude of Zoroastrian elements in this Persian remake. Because this Persian remake is basically an anti-Zoroastrian story. I'm far from being an expert on Zoroastrianism, so I'll just be drawing basic conclusions from the facts that we have. And we know that at the core of Zoroastrianism are such values as peace, tolerance, harmony, and righteousness. And those Zoroastrian values seem to be completely in line with the political values Cyrus promoted in the empire. And since conquerors rarely galvanize people to join their conquests with religious calls for peace and harmony, it makes sense to me that the Persian religion of Zoroastrianism evolved into that form that aspires to peace and harmony, once the Persian Empire came to be. Once you're an empire, promoting peace, tolerance, and harmony can be not only objectively good values, but also useful for an empire. If everybody believes in peace, stability, and harmony, it's harder to rebel. It's harder to justify a coup it's harder to justify a war. And if the religion cannot be used to justify rebellion, a coup, or war, it means that it's harder to get people to support a rebellion, a coup, or a war. You cannot use religion to undermine the empire. 
one of the roles of the religion is to maintain order and stability. If you can make a religious case for a rebellion, we know from history that it increases the chances of your rebellion succeeding. But Zoroastrianism promoted peace, tolerance, harmony and righteousness. And that is conducive to having more peaceful, tolerant, harmonious and righteous kings. Mm. It's like the capitalistic culture in the United States is conducive to what is known as the prosperity gospel, like for-profit religion. Mm. You have for-profit schools, for-profit prisons, for-profit hospitals, and for-profit churches. You don't get that in, I don't know, formerly Soviet countries, right? Religion always adapts to the local culture, and you can't separate the one from the other. And that's the same for ancient Persia. You couldn't separate the political values from the religious values. And there are many similarities, nay, identicalities, between Zoroastrian theology and the theology of Ezra. But before we get to that, let's first focus on a crucial difference, and that's the number of gods. How many gods are there? Whereas for Ezra, there was but one divine power, for the Zoroastrians, there were two. Zoroastrianism was a dualistic religion, and also a proto-monotheistic religion, as there was one supreme being, supreme god, Ahura Mazda, and he represents everything that is good. But there was also another divine power in the universe, evil called Angra Mainyu. So there was light and there was darkness, harmony and chaos. Ezra, on the other hand, he saw both light and darkness, both chaos and order, as aspects of the one God, Yahweh. The Zoroastrians, they begged to disagree. And it was their culture that stood on top of the empire. So it seems to me that Ezra felt he had to comment on this theological disagreement and do it in the Bible. Let me read you what Ezra writes about Cyrus's role in history and Cyrus's beliefs. This is written 100 years after Cyrus. So the text I'm going to read you now is not officially attributed to Ezra, as it appears in the book of Isaiah, chapter 45. But we know this is not Isaiah because Isaiah lived in the 700s BCE, and this was written in the 400s BCE. And I'm positive Ezra wrote this. It doesn't only make sense, but we'll also see later in the episode how it makes everything click. But we're not there yet. So Ezra is recounting the Hebrew version of the fall of Babylonia. 
And these are the words of Yahweh to Cyrus. For the sake of Israel, I summon you by name. So here, Ezra paints Yahweh as, honestly, a wannabe Marduch. Now he chose Cyrus by name, just like the inscription that says Marduch chose Cyrus by name. And it's a little bit embarrassing because even though Yahweh chose him by name, Cyrus doesn't know who Yahweh is. So Yahweh says, I chose you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, Yahweh, do all these things. This is in response to Zoroastrianism and their two divine power, light and darkness, prosperity and chaos. And Ezra says, no. No two powers fighting against each other, no. One power that brings both disaster and salvation. Mm. One. And this is important because Yahweh brought the Hebrews their disaster, the captivity, and he brought them prosperity, the return home. So that's a core disagreement. But for Ezra doesn't seem to be an unstarter because we're going to see how Ezra Zoroastrianed the Hebrew religion. We're going to have many episodes to talk about that. I'll just touch on some cool examples. So, is Zoroastrianism. The creation of the universe ends with good triumphing over evil. And the triumph of good is inevitable. And Ezra... We learned long ago, before we knew anything about Zoroastrianism, is very much into positive inevitability. Hmm? The triumph of good is inevitable also in his eyes. His exodus is optimistic. The original version, written in Babylonian times, is not optimistic. It is full of anxiousness and anger. So it turns out that Ezra just lived in optimistic times and... Hence, he was one of the many optimistic people. Good for them. And we also touched a bit on Ezra's obsession with purity, specifically the purity of the lineages. But we'll see that a lot in his worship, the worship that he instituted, there was a big emphasis on purity. And purity was integral to Zoroastrian worship. That was part of the harmony. And it seems to me that Zoroastrianism evolved from the salvation of the ancient world at the hand of Cyrus the Great, the savior who brought an end to oppression and ushered in an era of harmony. He was the supreme being that allowed good to defeat evil and light to vanquish 
darkness. And these are the core elements of Zoroastrianism. So the Zoroastrian creation story, the final victory of light over darkness, comes through violence. That's how Cyrus did it. Unlike his predecessors, Cyrus didn't brag about the violence that he had to commit in order to establish his empire. And he might have not sacked Babylon, but he did have to employ violence in order to conquer the world. And in the story, it includes cosmic violence, like molten metal raining from the sky. Mm. Fiery substance from the sky. Wah, wah, wah. That's part of the purification process to restore order and justice in the world. So this molten metal from the sky is not attacking you. It's attacking evil. The fiery projectiles raining from the sky are on your side. And this fiery solid rain stands out in Zoroastrianism because it's one of the rare destructive offensive Zoroastrian magical elements. See, once the Persian Empire was in place, things became mostly about keeping the good thing going, maintaining stability. So Zoroastrian magic inevitably became almost exclusively defensive in nature. Its magic meant to maintain harmony. Chaos, darkness, evil, they've been defeated, but... They are always trying to upend the world order. And so Zoroastrian priests were also magicians. They performed their magic in order to maintain the vital elements of life. Particularly, they performed magic to protect water. Water was considered holy and pure in Persian culture. And it had to remain so. It had to remain clean. Livestock was also considered a vital life element. And the Zoroastrian priests had magic to protect livestock as well. Oh, how much the Persians loved magic. In fact, they loved magic so much that the word itself, magic, comes from the Persian word magi. Magi was the word for a Zoroastrian priest. And these Magi and their protective spells might remind you of the Egyptian magicians in Ezra's Persian remake of the plagues. And maybe the fiery solid rain or the division between light and darkness also rang a bell? Maybe. And if your bell was rung a little bit, it means that we are now ready to go over our story for today. We are ready to take a seat and be part of Ezra's audience. We have been sufficiently Persianized. And we want to see if everything now suddenly clicks. And if the story of the plagues has become infinitely better.
Aaron raised his staff in the presence of the pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile. And the waters of Egypt, the streams, the canals, the ponds, and all of the reservoirs turned into blood. Their waters are contaminated. And here trot out the Egyptian Magi to cast some protective spells to safeguard their water. And there was blood in all of the land of Egypt, in the trees and stones. Amazing. And the Egyptian magicians performed their magic, the story says, and it's unclear whether it worked or not in the first time. And then the Pharaoh's heart was hardened as Yahweh had foretold. That's the first plague. In the original, when the Pharaoh's heart hardened, this is the Pharaoh flip-flopping, like Necho and his predecessors and successors. But for Ezra, there was nothing unexpected about the world, and everything was foretold. In the original, the flip-flopping, the fickleness, that was where the drama was at. But drama, I think, suggests chaos. <laughs> and in Persian times, we don't like chaos. So then Yahweh tells the Hebrew magician priest, Aharon or Tzadok, tells Tzadok, to stretch out his hand with his staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up to cover the land of Egypt. Oh, disgusting. Ezekiel emphasized in the original how annoying it was for the Egyptians to have frogs in their houses and their beds and ovens and everywhere. But in the Persian remake, the plague of frogs is another attack by Yahweh to contaminate the water, hmm? the streams and canals and ponds. Both of these plagues emphasize how the magic is making the water dirty. And sure enough again on cue, since water is under attack, the Egyptian Magi respond with protective spells to safeguard their water. The magicians perform their magic, but they too made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. It's a little bit funny here. <laughs> With their bogus protective spell backfiring? Is that humor? And then the Pharaoh's heart hardens again, as was foretold. And Sadok stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust on the ground. And all of the dust of the land became lice that spread to people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became lice. Wow, 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 wow. Ezra is fantastic at describing magic. And now it's pretty clear that Ezra got his fascination with magic from the Persian world he was brought up in as a Hebrew-Persian man. So all of the dust throughout the land of Egypt became lice. 
There are not many places in the world more sandy and thus more dusty than Egypt. So <laughs> lice is everywhere. It's like forcing me to imagine it like in CGI. Lice is, again, disgusting, dirty. It sucks out life. It's impure. And lice, they are almost invisible. So this is not an attack on the livestock with magic that creates bears or lions. And then you would need sol soldiers to repel their attack. But here, the livestock are attacked by magical lice. And they can only be protective with magic. Defensive magic. And so again, the Egyptian Magi come out, casting spells, trying to protect their livestock. Mm. And the pharaoh's heart hardens once more, as was foretold. And you'll notice that in this story, the pharaoh is not even a character. And then comes the plague of pestilence. Disease. Again, dirty. Aimed at people and livestock. So God is creating all this chaos. And the Hebrew Magi, Tzadok, he takes handfuls of ash from a furnace and tosses it in the air in the presence of the Pharaoh. And it became fine dust over the whole land of Egypt. And festering boils broke out on the people and animals throughout the land. Impure, dirty contamination. And the magicians, they want to protect the livestock, but the magicians could not stand before him, Tzadok, because of the boils, for the boils were upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. <laughs> they wanted to cast protective spells to safeguard the livestock from disease, but they couldn't do so because they themselves had the disease. <laughs> That sounds like irony. And it feels like a light-hearted jab in what is surprisingly a light-hearted remake of Ezekiel's revenge fantasy story. Huh? I mean, it seems like another comedic element and it's not the last one. So three times the Pharaoh's heart hardened, hardened itself as Yahweh had foretold. But after the fourth plague, it says, Yahweh hardened the Pharaoh's heart and he would not listen as Yahweh had foretold. And I think this is comedic as well. So, for Ezra, God is active in creating history. Right? The people are passive. So God can't just watch from the sidelines as the Pharaoh decides what to do. No, no, no. God foretold the Pharaoh wouldn't listen. And here, starting from the fourth plague, he will actively make the Pharaoh not listen. And then the text will brag as Yahweh had foretold. So Yahweh had foretold that the Pharaoh would not listen. And to make sure he is not wrong, he makes the Pharaoh not listen. And then he brags, as Yahweh had foretold, 
I think this is comedy. <laughs> well, this part appears in the Bible we have today, in the Ten Plagues. Yahweh is hardening the Pharaoh's heart. That reeks of cruelty. God wants the Hebrew to stay subjugated some more so he can destroy Egypt? That's disturbing. It's barbaric. But when we go over it now in context, the only thing I want to accuse God of is cheating. I think he's cheating. Like he has the power to harden the Pharaoh's heart. And he does harden the Pharaoh's heart. That's very impressive. But what's emphasized as impressive is that Yahweh had foretold it. It's not foretelling if you make it happen, if it's within your powers. That's not what foretelling is. I mean, I'm not Yahweh, but I can also pull off this kind of trick. I can foretell just like Yahweh foretold here. I can foretell that you will be listening to this episode. And here you are, just as I had foretold. So I think this is a little bit funny. I didn't know Ezra had humor. And in any case, the biggest change Ezra made to the original was writing a story devoid of hate and anger. Ezekiel described the suffering and agony of Egypt because he wanted revenge against Babylonia and Egypt. But when Ezra was writing this, Babylonia and Egypt were merely provinces in the good and extremely likable Persian Empire. So when Ezra Persianized the plague story, he inevitably injected some likability into Egypt. And I think that no more so then with these cute little Egyptian magi, come on. I think they're fantastic. So it's sad to say that now that the attacks on water and livestock are behind us, the Egyptian magi magicians will exit stage left and will not come back to our story. Mm. Because up to now, Yahweh operated as an agent of chaos. But in the remaining plagues, he will switch places and he will protect his people. And now we're getting to the fifth plague. When Yahweh rains molten hail from the sky to destroy the enemy. Oh, the Hebrews needn't worry because the fiery projectiles are on their side. ויית משה את מתהו על השמיים, ויהוה נתן קולות וברד, ותהלך אש ארצה, ויהי ברד, ואש מתלקחת בתוך הברד, כבד מאוד. It says in our Bibles today that Moses performed this magic, but I'll read it in English as צדוק. צדוק stretch out his staff towards the sky. And Yahweh sent thunder and hail. And fire fell to the ground. And hail 
with fire burning inside the torrential hail. So this sounds to me like an appropriation of the Zoroastrian molten metal falling from the sky. But this is more than appropriation. It's appropriation used to undermine the culture from which you appropriated this element. This is a theological rebuke of Zoroastrianism. Hmm? Ezra, we heard him earlier make the point that God brings both disaster and prosperity, both light and darkness. The two Zoroastrian divine forces, evil, chaotic Angra Mainyu and supreme good Ahura Mazda. And in the first four plagues, Yahweh operates like Angra Mainyu. He was the forces of evil causing chaos, disaster and disease. But here in the fifth plague of the fiery hail, now he switched places. Now he's doing what Ahura Mazda did to save his people with fiery rain. Hmm? And there is no Magi spell to protect against that because that's the power of good. Yahweh does them both. And so no Egyptian magicians here. And here Ezra uses the word for thunder, kolot. I didn't know that. Kolot means sounds. So thunder in ancient Hebrew is sounds. Fantastic. And here comes the sixth plague and the swarm of locusts. Sadok stretched forth his staff over the land of Egypt and the locust went up all over the land and rested in all of the coasts of Egypt. In the Persian remake, even the locusts are not scary. In the original, this was the final plague that engulfed Egypt in darkness. But this version is lighthearted. And the locusts do eat all of the plants, but basically they rest in all of the coasts of Egypt. That's a little bit cute, I think. <laughs> I feel. And then Yahweh hardens the Pharaoh's heart again, because we have to get to seven plagues. Seven was a major force in maintaining the state of harmony in Persian times. And here Yahweh is restoring balance to the world by taking his people out of their captivity and back to their ancestral homeland. And the seventh and final plague is known as the plague of darkness, but it should be known as the plague of darkness and light, which does sound <laughs> Zoroastrian, because Yahweh is creating here both darkness and light. And again, it exactly coincides with what Ezra wrote in his theological retelling of Cyrus saving the world. There are no two Zoroastrian divine powers of darkness and light. I, Yahweh, create both darkness and light. And Ezra turned this theological disagreement into his most beautiful of plagues. 
Let me read it first in Hebrew. ויאמר יהו אל משה, נטה ידך על השמיים, ויהי חושך על ארץ מצרים, וימש חושך, ויט משה את ידו על השמיים, ויהי חושך אפלה בכל ארץ מצרים, שלושת ימים. לא ראו איש את אחיו, ולא קמו איש מתחתיו שלושת ימים. ולכל בני ישראל היה אור במושבותם. So I'll read it in English with Tzadok instead of Moses. Yahweh said to Tzadok, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt, so thick you could touch it. And Tzadok stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was a thick darkness in all of the land of Egypt for three days. They could not see one another, and none rose from their beds for three days. And at that time, the Israelites had light where they lived. Mm, so much, so much great stuff here. So first, I want to start with how Ezra describes the darkness. Vayamesh Choshech. Choshech means darkness. Vayamesh, Yamesh comes from the root mash or yamash. It's the sense of touch, right? One of our senses, touch, mishush, chusha mishush, sense of touch. So you could touch, you could sense the darkness. That's how thick the darkness was. Great stuff by Ezra. In the original, if you remember, after the seventh plague, the Pharaoh is broken and he allows the Hebrews to head for the desert. But in the Persian remake, the seventh and final plague doesn't change the Pharaoh's heart. No, there is no surprises there. Things have been foretold. And Ezra does not break his structures. So Yahweh hardens the Pharaoh's heart again. And they don't have permission to leave. So what are the Hebrews to do now? They have three days when they can go wherever they please, having light, while Egypt is home. Everybody's home. Except the Hebrews. So what do the Hebrews do? Mm. And they took their journey from Sukkot and encamped in Etam, in the edge of the desert. Did you get that? They just left. There is darkness and they just scoot on out of here. They're using the plague of darkness to leave. That's the conclusion of the remake. They flee. They sneak out. And if you remember, the Pharaoh will soon chase the Hebrews right into the Red Sea. Both Ezekiel and Ezra will write about that. In the original... It's just the Pharaoh flip-flopping once again. And after allowing the Hebrews to leave, he chases after them. In the Persian remake, he never gave them permission. And that's why he's going to chase them. Awesome. <laughs> I think all of our questions are answered. And I think the magic trick worked. Just like in the previous episode. 
Once we know about darkness and light, chaos and prosperity, about Zoroastrian magic, fiery rain, once we see the humor, the lightheartedness in this story, I think it's infinitely better. I was never a big fan of the plagues. Now, this is just stupendous. How about that for Hebrew-Persian literature? So now that we're just starting to scratch the surface of how many Zoroastrian elements are in the Bible, it might be a good time to ponder what is the Bible really? Ezra issued the first Bible, the first biblical canon. He took texts written by Iron Age Hebrews living under Assyria and Babylon, and he canonized them at the beginning of the classical period in Persian times, and he canonized them by filtering everything through a Zoroastrian perspective. The new religion Ezra was setting up was like a new structure, and the structure was Persian. Within it, he added the Iron Age elements that include Sumerian elements, Akkadian, Assyrian, and Babylonian. That was the first Bible he compiled and issued in the 400s BCE. At around that same time, to the east of Zoroastrian Persia, the dominant culture and religion was Hinduism. India lay to the east. And there too sprout a local fringe religion that somehow is now thriving more than it ever did before. And that's Buddhism. Buddhism. And the Buddhist and Hebrew religions have something in common. Both of them were formulated as religions in direct response to the bigger and more popular religions of their day. It's well documented how Buddhism was canonized in opposition to Hinduism. And it is now clear to me that the Hebrew religion was canonized in opposition to Zoroastrianism. The Hebrew religion was the fringe religion. But who's the fringe religion now, Zoroastrians, huh? No, but seriously, you gotta love Zoroastrianism. Ezra seems to have had a love-hate relationship with it. And nowhere is it more apparent than in the one story Ezra wrote that is even more famous than the plague story. His plague story is his second most famous text. His number one story is the story that opens the Bible. That's the creation story. Mm, this is the beginning. And if you remember, in the beginning, there was chaos and darkness. And God brings order, harmony, and light. And the light is good. Mm. As a Persian man, Ezra knew 
that the elements of light and darkness being separate is just a bedrock of the universe. And that's at the core of religions. His perspective was just that Yahweh was in charge of both darkness and light. But he accepted the Zoroastrian theology that chaos and darkness preceded order and light. And there are more identical elements here. It seems that the creation story by Ezra is a Hebrew remake of the Zoroastrian original. That's just a sample of how much Zoroastrianism has shaped global culture, really. The contrast between good and evil never gained prominence in the Hebrew religion, but it was there in its DNA. When the Hebrew religion evolved into a new strand, Christianity, it carried that Zoroastrian DNA. And there, the eternal battle between good and evil did manifest itself as God and Satan. So it's not only the Persian plagues that have irony. I think history too is very ironic. Because remember the Cyrus Cylinder? He brags that the God that sent him to save the world is, of course, the most well-known God, Marduk. He doesn't care about Yahweh. Who cares about Yahweh in the 400s BCE? Very few people. But today, everybody knows about Yahweh. And nobody knows about Marduk. And also, not that many people know about Cyrus. I would venture that more people know about Ezra than about Cyrus, because Ezra has a book in the Bible. <laughs> Unbelievable that this happened this way. <laughs> so what is the Bible? What is it? Maybe it's a case study of how human culture evolves. The Bible is a book that carries in it textual DNA of our ancestral human cultures since the dawn of civilization in Mesopotamia. It is surely, in my eyes, the most precious archaeological finding of human culture. And we're only on episode 60. So we have just uncovered a tiny little bit of the puzzle. We are just getting started. So, what did we learn in this episode? I think we learned that whether you're Christian, Muslim, or Jewish, we're all basically Zoroastrians. Hmm? Can't different Zoroastrian sects get along? Come on, let's bring back our original common Persian values of peace, harmony, tolerance, Let's promote leaders that brag about good deeds, about being righteous and making people's faces shine in gladness. 
And suppose you're conservative about these things and you don't feel like changing your religion. I get that. But look at it this way. By going Zoroastrian, you would actually be doing the real conservative thing. And going back to your roots, uh, to our ancestral religion. What is remarkable about Persia is how Cyrus was not only ambitious enough to conquer the world, but that he was wise enough to understand the political moment he was living through. And he was wise enough to use that political moment to make the world a better place. I can't get over how Cyrus turned history on a dime and did a complete 180 with his vision for the world. And the facts show that, at that time, after centuries of chaos and evil, the world was ready for something new, for something good. People yearned for peace, harmony, righteousness, good deeds and upright hearts. Cyrus's incredible success at ruling according to these values created a template for the subsequent kings of kings. Few of them were bad rulers, and none of them came ever close to being as bad as those from the pre-Persian world. We today, we live in a cynical time, but we shouldn't project our current cynicism backward onto history and view everything that happened in history through a cynical perspective. That's not the way to view history. It's not that being cynical is an eternal human experience. This is part of our culture today. So let's think about that time when God, whichever God it may be, called upon Cyrus by name to save the world. And he did. I have a feeling that this moment in time was so incredibly dramatic that it still reverberates in our cultures today. I would not be surprised if the original concept of a messiah, and Cyrus is called Yahweh's messiah, I wouldn't be surprised if the original concept of a savior that ends suffering and ushers eternal peace and harmony I would not be surprised if that originated with the peace and harmony Cyrus the Great brought onto the world. We'll probably not get a chance to dive into it deeper anytime soon on an episode, but we will have a chance to dive deeper into this on one of our upcoming tribal meetings. We hold monthly tribal meetings to brainstorm and have fun uh, talking about the Bible, religions, history, culture, things like that. And if that sounds like uh, fun to you, we happen to just now be accepting new members for our tribe, so you're in luck. Just 
head on over to patreon.com slash biblical proportions. On one of our recent uh, tribal meetings, tribe member Thomas asked me whether hail was a rare or common phenomenon in Israel. And that is a great question because it made me think and realize something about the plague of hail. Thomas asked this because he lives in Finland and hailstorms are not that rare over there and hence are not as dramatic. If Yahweh had cast plagues on Scandinavia, he would maybe have cast a plague of heat. But in Israel, and in the south of it particular, because we're talking about Judea here, hail is rare. It comes around once every few years, and it's always incredibly dramatic. The world stops. We're all mesmerized. And if you have crops, I'm sure that feels like a violent judgment handed down from above. So that was probably the inspiration for Ezekiel for the plague of hail. Mm. So shout out, Thomas. In the next episode, we'll get to the very final plague, the 10th plague, that of the firstborn. Mm. That one was added in Hellenistic times, when Exodus was undergoing editing. That was when Ezekiel's narrative and Ezra's narrative were sewn together into the version we have today. So we'll talk about the horrible final plague and we'll cap off the stories of the plagues. After that, there's our first holiday. Hurrah! And then the parting of the Red Sea. <laughs> but first, the tenth plague. That's coming in two weeks. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, tribe. I'm Gil Kidron. Bye.